good morning. Great to see you today. Maybe a few things with the announcements. Uh, late breaking news, um, because I happen to be in the back. Um, there is no meeting today. Is that true? No meeting. So um, just forget you even watched that. Um, so no meeting with the DR trip. And again, thank you so much for whoever partnered with us and um, ran and helped with the 5K. Um, I can tell you that it is making a significant impact in the minds of the leaders of our city and in the community. Um, I, get, I get talked about, or they approach me about it a, a lot, maybe every week. Um, and, uh, you know, over the last two years, we've been able to give almost $10,000 to Parks and Rec, and that's significant, and, uh, you know, we're just trying to, again, be here for the city, to provide an event to the life of the city, and also to say, hey, we love our city, and we want to put even our money where our mouth is, right? First John says, how can you say you love if you don't, hey, I love you, but I'm not going to get involved with you, and so that's what we're trying to do. So thank you so much. The other thing I want to tell you is in first service, Dave was watching, right? And we show the video, and uh, I get a text from him because I'm using my phone now for uh, a remote here. And um, all it said was, in capital letters, dunk tank, question mark about 10 times. We haven't bothered to let him know that he's getting dunked that Sunday, and he found out just like the rest of you. So I thought that was, thought that was fun. So... Again, three Sundays after today's over with, it's the third Sunday. Um, could you treat that like a birthday party, a family birthday party, right? You're like, okay, so niece is having a birthday party. I'm blocking that out. That's kind of what we're doing here. 50 years, we're celebrating our church's birthday. Um, and so come for worship, eat with us. We got a lot of stuff going on that day. Just block it out. And uh, let's celebrate together. It's amazing what God has done over the years here, how he has brought all of us together in this place where we strengthen, encourage, and uh, pool our resources together to serve our community. And I want to celebrate that and the impact it's had in on our lives, all of our lives. And also, I want to celebrate more than anything else one thing, God's faithfulness, man. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows, he works, he moves. He spoke into the heart of, of Jim and defiance 50 years ago, over 50 years ago, because he had a plan in mind. He wanted to do something. And he wanted to see his kingdom come and his will be done. And we get to experience that. We get to be a part of that. And we want to celebrate that. And so um, uh, just make sure, you're, make sure you block that out and uh, come ready for a good time. Because of that, you know, when you have a milestone birthday, um, you start to think things like, you know, who am I? You know, I'm going to turn 40 next year. I'm already starting to have those questions. Like, who am I? Who have I become? Where am I going? Where have I been? We do those on milestones, and we just thought it would be appropriate as we're moving towards celebrating our church's 50th to kind of have a time of who are we, where are we, what do we look like, um, so to speak, as God sees things. And, and you know what? It's incredible. There's this a portion of Scripture that is um, written just for stuff like this. It's in the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you're like me, um, revelation is somewhere you don't turn to first. 
Anybody else like that? Is Revelation your devotional reading? Absolutely not. I'm gonna be honest. Especially chapters four through 21, uh, sometimes I've avoided it like the plague. Um, God wrote it for a reason. Um, It's significant, but man, it's confusing. Reading about white horses and golden candlesticks and I don't know, I don't know. I just read it and I'm like, I don't know. And then I read it and read what somebody who's a lot smarter than me says about it. I'm like, that sounds good. Yeah, that's what it means. Then I read somebody else who's smarter than me, who I respect, and they say something different about the same passage, and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that God is faithfully going to accomplish what he said he was going to, and it's gonna all work out um, like he has planned it. And that book can be kind of, uh, ah, I'm gonna avoid it. Or some people can get, so wrapped up in it because we're, we're planners, right? Or a lot of you are. Or at least people on my staff are, right? It's so annoying. Like, they want to know what they're doing six months from today on their week. I'm like, I don't care. I'm trying to make it through next week. No, we got to plan this out. I don't want to plan it out. That sounds awful to me, you know? And we're like that, though. Most of us are. I want to know what's coming, what's ahead. And, and so we dive into Revelation because we want to know. Like, so this means this, and I can get ready for this. And when this happens, I, you know, and I'm just like, I don't, it's confusing. And um, we kind of skip it. But the first three chapters of Revelation are incredible. Jesus appears to John 60 years, 60 years after he's left this earth, after he's ascended to the Father. And he says, John, you know, this is what I want you to know, what I'm seeing right now. I left you guys, you 12 guys, and then it kept growing. I left my church in your hands, and, and Jesus his church is, is his precious possession, right? He uses phrases like, um, the church is my bride. That's what it is to him. The church is his bride. He's coming back to get his bride. I mean, this is the special thing to him. And so we get this unbelievable glimpse into what he's seeing with his church, the bride he's coming to get through the the, uh, revelation that he gives John on the Isle of Patmos, right? And he talks to him, he says, John, I want you to see what I'm seeing. My bride, my my." my big deal here on this earth. The church is my precious thing and this is what I'm seeing and I want you to know so you can tell them what I'm seeing and I want you to uh, write to these different churches so they can understand how they can be my bride, be a bride to the groom who's coming. And, And we get this unique picture of seven churches that were in that day but they're represented in represented in every day this is what we naturally tend to do as people these this church these seven churches are a picture of what happens all the time everywhere with churches and with people right and um we would say uh, these seven churches we've looked at they're asia minor right so this is uh north of israel um in that in that area and uh Some of these churches, we have no idea how they started, except for the fact that we know this church right here, Ephesus, 
was the mother church. Um, it seems Paul spent a lot of years there. He had a church there, and it's like out of that church, everything else forms. People get fired up about Jesus here, and they go there. They get fired up about Jesus here, and they go there. And it forms these seven churches that actually are a postal route, all right? Um, This is if you sent your mail from Ephesus and you wanted to go to Philadelphia, it's going to go through these towns first. It's the the postal route, which is interesting. It seems a lot more coordinated than it is today, right? If I want to mail Kathy a letter, we both live in Napoleon, my letter goes to Detroit now and then comes back, right? Just seems inefficient, but they know what they're doing, I guess. Um, they do. You guys act like I'm being facetious, they do. But, um, so this was the postal route, right? And so we've looked at these churches in Ephesus. It's this church that was dynamic. It's the mother church, and it still stays incredible. And Jesus says, man, I, I, your work and your witness and everything is just, it's incredible. That's what I see. I, I know everything that goes on. I see this. And he says to the church at Ephesus, I, I, guys, keep what you're doing. You, you are, but he says there's something that's happened with you guys and me. It's like, it's like what can happen with marriages so often. You have this marriage that starts out white hot, right? I hope your marriage started out white hot. Come together, love, first love, right? I mean, you just can't get enough of each other and it's intoxicating and it spills over into the first year and the second year and and then what happens or can happen so naturally is that the circumstances of life and building a home begin to come in and that's gonna be natural, right? That's the way it's supposed to be. And all of a sudden, um, we, we've, we've committed ourselves to this person, we want this companionship, this life together, and we've structured our lives around making sure that um, we provide a great environment for that to happen. And, and we're committed, and we're, we're, we're actually, we're, uh, we're conscientious about it, we're, uh, I'm not remembering the word I want to say right now, that I said first service right now, but um, we're considerate. I mean, we, we you know, I'm, I'm invested. I'm going to do this, this, and this to make this relationship go. I got the outside of the house. I'll vacuum. I'll do the, the you know, I'll take these responses. You take these to make it easy, to make it flow. And life just goes. Kids come in and blue, 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 blue. And we're just moving, moving, moving. And what can happen so often is that in the middle of doing everything right for this environment, that we lose that spark, that love, that intimate companionship. It kind of dissipates in the middle of everything else. And he said, Ephesus, that's what's happened. You're so busy for me, and you're so, that you and I are not connecting. And the most important thing I wanna see happen is for us to be, is for us to connect. You think about this, this is how God has always been. Read Genesis, the first couple chapters. God creates a man and a woman, and then what does he wanna do with them every day? He wants to visit with them. He wants to walk with them in the cool of the night, at, you know, dusk time. He wants to spend time with them. He created us to have relationship. And he said, listen, you, you're missing that. You're doing all the right things for me. And he says, you've become a going through the motions. 
And he calls him out of this. He calls him back to his first love. And he says, churches do that. But you know why churches do that? It's this point that we've made over and over. Churches fail because people fail. Ephesus became a going through the motions church because the people, first of all, became a going through the motions people. And so this, this series is not just looking at churches, it's looking at us. Because what we become, our churches will become. This is us. This is a diagnosis of each one of us as individuals. And I've asked you this question to ask yourself every, out through this series. Which letter would Jesus send to me? Which one? You look at my life and say, all right, pull that one off the file. Change the name from Sardis to, uh, to Rob. You're in the front row. Sorry, Rob. Change it to Rob. Mail it to Napoleon. Because this is Rob. This is what you look. Which letter would Jesus send to me? You know, I want to look at a church today that this is what could be said of it. Dr. Scott Daniel says this. In this church we're gonna look at today, we learn just as much from what it isn't, what isn't in the letter, as much as what is in the letter. Unlike the letters to the other six churches, this letter to Sardis contains no mention of persecution, no repentance to the danger of heresy, right? We talked last week about these churches, um, uh, Pergamos and Thyatira, that, man, it was... Uh, it was uh, difficult in that culture as it is in this culture to be a believer. And the way you live following Jesus is never going to look like the way the world is trying to live. It's just not. It's incompatible. The life of Jesus is incompatible with the fallen world. We're going to look different. We're going to live differently. Yeah, don't take that too far. Like we're gonna be freaks or something. You know what I mean? We just are. We're gonna have different values than the world does. And what was happening in those two cities is, man, it became difficult. I mean, living for Jesus caused them economic hardship. It caused them social struggle. It caused them, and what they decided to do, because Smyrna didn't. Smyrna faced a, an, an enormous amount of persecution, and they just said, you know what? We're committed, and we're not going to change the way we live, and Jesus looks at Smyrna and says, wow. He doesn't even say anything like, hey, you need to fix this. He just says, I just want to encourage you. And what's amazing is of all the seven churches, six of them are gone. One remains. That's Smyrna. The church that faced the most amount of persecution to this day, those believers right now, they've probably already had church, right? Um, modern day Turkey, it's east of us. So they've already had church today. Those people that walk into those, that church can say, you know what? We can, we can look back all the way to the first century to when Jesus wrote this letter. He was writing to our church. The only one. All of these others just dissipated. they gone. They succumbed. And what does it teach us that, listen, God will faithfully enable us if we're willing to just stay faithful to him. Doesn't it matter the amount of pressure, hardship, circumstances that are unfavorable? God will always, if we're faithful, he will provide a way for us. Smyrna teaches us, but the other two churches are like, I know I'm throwing a lot of churches out at you, and some of you are like, man, I'm just like spinning here. What, what church now? You know, what's the name of that one? They're weird names, right? The two churches we talked about last week, 
they decided, you know what? I don't really want to, I, I don't like pain. <laughs> I don't like hardship. But I like Jesus too. So I'm just going to change what Jesus said. I'm just going to, I'm going to interpret it different. And I'm going to have Jesus, but I'm also going to live this so that I can kind of have both. And Jesus, I'm telling you, man, like in the New Testament, the harshest words in the New Testament are to false teachers. People who take the gospel of Jesus and change it, pervert it. He hates that because it deceives people, it tricks people. There's never any intimacy with him when you change what he's about. And he, remember last week, he's, he's like, I got a tongue that's like a sword. It's gonna cut through all of this baloney. And I've got eyes like fire that see right through this. And you need to change this. I would remind you today that there are churches all over and there are people all over that are facing the pressure of living like Jesus in a world that is not Christian. And we don't know what to do with that. And so often we decide, you know what? I don't know, I don't know if I can do the Jesus thing, so I'm gonna change what Jesus was about so I can have both. Because the world's telling us that some of the things Jesus taught and lived, they're intolerant, they're unloving, how, what do you mean Jesus said that li- certain lifestyles are, are, are not godly? What do you mean? You can't say that. That's intolerant. That's unloving. And so what we do is we, we kind of cave. I don't want to be intolerant. I don't want to be unloving. So we change what Jesus says, Right? we got churches all over that the word Jesus looks at him and says listen that's not the gospel that's not the truth of God you've changed it and what was the question we asked do I bend my theology to fit my lifestyle do I bend right so I'm getting weighted down there big time this church none of that was going persecution heresy no allusion to Jewish opposition there wasn't the the Jewish faith fighting against the church which it always did It is unique among the seven churches. If you're like me, you're like, wow, this sounds like a place I want to go. They weren't having hardship. They weren't having uh, uh, heresy, no false teaching. Man, it sounds like a great place until you begin to read about it. Now, to understand Sardis is to understand um, this. Sardis was a super wealthy place. Sardis was a super wealthy place. If you think about it in today's culture, it's like Paris because it was the wool center for that whole region. That's where they made wools, they, they, they produced wool, then they made garments, and it just became like the mecca for fashion, so to speak, and garments, and like Paris, right? And um, it was super wealthy, super affluent. It had been that way for years because there had always been a certain amount of security at Sardis. This is modern day pictures of kind of the area Sardis was in. Right? It's, there's valleys, and then there's these, these mountains. And it's not super high, but Sardis was 1,500 feet high. And it sat up on a plateau. And so it was never, it was very rarely at risk of being sieged. They, they, they were able to protect themselves, defend themselves, and grow their way of life. And they became wealthy. They became uh, uh, the envy of a lot of places. 
This is another, uh, just kind of a, a, some um, remains from Sardis that still stand. And over the years, I mean, it was known as a, a wealthy place. And with that came certain things like arrogance. Isn't that what wealth does to us, right? We get a little arrogant, right? Yeah, I'll just pay for it. If that happens, I'll just cover it. Right? That's what happens. You ever been around wealthy people? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you've ever been in, I, I spent time in Indian Hills area of Cincinnati. I mean, you're talking one percenters. And an underlying theme with wealthy people is a certain just air of arrogance, right? Are you guys awake? I'm not saying anything new. Unless you guys are all super wealthy and I didn't, like. If that's so, we got a couple buildings we want to build and you need to stop holding out, right? No. Um, and that's what happened. And they became prideful. And so what happened in their history twice was this. One time, the Persian army, you remember the Persians ruled the world. Well, they're starting to advance, move, and Sardis realized this. And so they thought, well, first of all, we're going to be proactive. We're going to go out and meet them and fight them. That didn't work out. They went out to fight the Persian Cyrus, and it didn't work. They were defeated. They're running home. They're running home, though, thinking, you know what? Once we get home, there's no way that they can take our city. And so they got home, blockaded themselves in. Sure enough, the Persian army advanced. They wanted to take that place. And literally, the arrogance of Sardis was so much that they didn't even bother to guard the steep walls that their cities stood on, especially in one area. Sure, there was the road and the entrance, and they were fortifying. They didn't even bother to put one guard out. And you know what the Persians were able to do? They figured out a way to scale the walls, come into the city like a thief in the night, and overtake the city. You would think you would learn from that, right? 500 years later, the same exact thing happened. Now, there's no way. And sure enough, they trusted in their structure. They trusted in what they had, their, their circumstances, their structure. They thought there's no way. And sure enough, 500 years later, almost exactly 500 years later, the same thing happens again. That's Sardis. I mean, you're talking about people who uh, just have had a lot and trust in what they have. And so Jesus writes these words to them. And he says this, if I can find it. To the angel in the church of Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember, Jesus always opens his letter by saying something about himself. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, he says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who's in, I'm in control of the churches. And to, to uh, the other two churches, um, he says, listen, I've got a, a tongue that's like a sword and eyes like fire. You better pay attention. It's like one of those I need to see you moments, right? Come to the office type thing. He opens a letter kind of that way. So what he says at the beginning is trying to communicate what we need to know in this church. And he says, who holds the seven spirits of God. If you're like me, I'm reading that, and I'm like, er, what? I didn't know God had seven spirits. 
This is weird. I thought there was only one spirit, the Holy Spirit, right? Begin to read, read, think about this, understand that the reason why he says this is because in the scriptures there is one Holy Spirit, but he represents himself in the spirit of like knowledge and wisdom and counsel and strength. And this is kind of how he gives himself in the spirit of this. And so he is talking about the Holy Spirit and the different ways that he ministers to us. And quickly we understand one thing. This church needs to understand the person of the Holy Spirit. I need to get something about the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Well, no wonder he didn't talk about heresy. No wonder he didn't talk about, whoa. That would have been a Facebook moment, right? (laughs) Evidently, what can happen in churches and in hearts is we can reach a point where we look alive but nothing's going on inside. And of all the churches, this is the scariest place to be because evidently they didn't even realize it. You're gonna notice what Jesus says to them. They just lived week in, week out. Hey, Showed up, did some good things, have good morals, have the right appearance, didn't kill anybody, didn't steal, was a good citizen, all that, yada, yada, yada. In fact, the word that describes this church is this word. Oh, don't do this to me now. It's nominal. Anybody know what nominal is? Nominal means to exist in name only. To exist in name only. And Jesus says, Sardis, you still have Jesus on the sign. And you're still seeing Jesus in your songs. And you still say things like, I'm a Christian. But there's nothing going on inside. You've become nominal. You begin to trust in the right appearance, the religious activities, the good deeds, and the moral person you've become. And all the while you've missed this relationship with the Holy Spirit. I'm really thinking about this this week a lot. Man, this can happen. This does happen. Churches and people become religious. Can you believe that? Have you ever been to a church like that? Have you ever been a person like that? Everything's put together right, but there's no life. The churches are doing all the religious activities, but there's there's nothing there. It's dead. 
And he says, you look good, but you're dying. I've been thinking about how in the world does that happen? And I think this, this phrase is appropriate. There is only one way to coast. It's downhill, right? Can't coast uphill. Can't coast um, flat. You have to have a downward, wouldn't be incline, it'd be decline. And what seems to happen to us is the enemy tricks us, and he's been doing this to millions of people for a lot of years, into believing that if I can order my life into right belief, religious activity, and good morals, that I'm good with God. Right? And we just begin to coast in that thinking. But you know what coasting does? It leads us downhill, farther and farther and farther. All of us are candidates for this. I hope we understand that today. This church could become a nominal church. This church could be a religious institution. Now, if you're asking me, we're not there, okay? We're not, but we could. And I feel like I'm talking to people today that you're not there, but you could. So you need to hear the word of warning today. All of us need to hear that because we have a natural tendency and the enemy then sows into our lives, hey, just coast. Just put it in a box and order your life in this way and, and then put that back on the shelf and, you're, and you just coast. And we become nominal. And this is what Jesus says to this church. Wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. If you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Just like Sardis, he knows how they think. He knows what relates to them. Just like your city was taken, because you just coasted. And we're okay. You know, we need to, just like that, you will come to a point in your life that as you coast further and further downhill in nominalism, that all of a sudden, there's nothing left. We see that all the time. All the time, people, you know, it goes from religious activity to that goes. I don't even need to show up. Then it becomes, I don't really even believe that. Just goes to a downward, downward slide of nominalism. And Jesus says, wake up, wake up, people. I was thinking about that, and one parable of Jesus came to mind. I just want to read it to you. It's pretty self-explanatory. At that time, Jesus is talking about the end of the world type stuff. He's talking about his coming back. He's talking about rapture type things in Matthew 24 and 25. And so he shares this little story with them. He says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps. Just put bridesmaids, all right? We get all hung up on the word virgin, what that means, blah, blah, blah. Who took their lamps, and the word is torch, right? It's not lamp like um, he uses in the Sermon on the Mount. It's torch. It's just a stick with the cloth and the oil, and you burn it, right? Torch. How many of you ever watched Sin City? Or Sin City? What the world? 
Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Snake City. Anybody else watch Snake City? Am I the only one in here? Oh, man, you guys are going to watch it when you go home. So cool. Durban, South Africa. It's a hotbed for all sorts of snakes. And they got this guy that that's what he does for a living. He goes in, and I'm talking black mambas and spitting cobras, green mambas. They, they live in and around this town of a million people. And they get in their homes. They get in their bedrooms. They get in their kitchens. A black mamba all the time. The deadliest snake in the world, right? I'm just fascinated by this show. I sit, my heart, my blood pressure goes up. Like I'm supposed to be relaxing, but I'm not. And this guy goes in there and catches these things. And the one thing he always refers to is the flashlight. In South Africa, they don't call it a flashlight. They call it a torch. Hand me my torch. You know, he's literally like, hand me my torch. I'm about ready to grab this really poisonous snake. No big deal. I just need to shine a light. Torch. That's the light here. And he says, they, they took their torches and went out to meet the bridegroom. The way this worked in, in weddings in that culture in that day, it was kind of three-step. First of all, mom and dad decided who you were going to marry. You guys up for that? No, thank the Lord. We are not Jewish. Right? They would pick. They would come together with an agreement. There would be an engagement. And then after a time, they would actually have a wedding ceremony. Come up. I do, I do, I'm committed, blah, blah, blah. But guess what? They didn't consummate the marriage. They actually went back to their homes after that. But they were married. And they would wait until the the groom had prepared a home for his bride. He was ready. He'd either built a home on the family compound or he'd bought land and built a home. And then it was this occasion that at that, it was at nighttime. The groom would say, I'm ready. I'm ready for her to move in. We're ready to live together, ready to do this. And he would get his wedding party with him. And they would go, and they would go to the bride's house and then they would have a celebration. It's one of these events. And he said that those bridesmaids, five of them were foolish, okay? Uh, the word there is moron. No joke, moros, moron. See, Jesus called people morons, so you can too. If that's the only, that's the only thing you're gonna get today, right? He said some of, five of them were morons. That's literally what he said. And he said five were wise, and the word wise there means wise. The, the morons took their lamps, but they didn't take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps, right? Oil is what's burning. You need that to keep burning your torch. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. Yeah, we all can relate to that, right? Things have not changed. Weddings take a long time right? Just because the ceremony's done, you're not done, right? You got to wait for pictures, and I told him in first service, you know what, I decided, because I don't like to wait, and that's probably sinful, but um, I just, uh, Nicole and I talking, I said, you know what, when we get married, we're going to take pictures afterwards, obviously, everybody's going to eat while we're taking pictures. They don't have to wait around, so you would have loved our wedding. It was, fat, you know, like, and uh, so they were eating. We were taking pictures. We came in, cut the cake. It was great. But um, you wait, right? And that's what's happening here. I don't know what was going on. The photographer was late or whatever. 
you know that's not true, right? But um, it was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. And at midnight, the cry rang out, hey, it's time to go. It's, let's get this on, show on the road. And all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. Kind of, they were dying out, right? They needed that to get in. That was a part of the ceremony. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil. We didn't pack any. Our lamps are going out. No, there might not be enough for us and you. Go to those who sell oil and buy some from yourselves. Buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to go get the oil, the bridegroom arrived. And the five who were wise were ready. They went in to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later the others also came and said, hey, open the door. To which the bridegroom replied, hey, this party's already started. It's like a bouncer at a door. You can't get in. We're full. I truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch. See, the emphasis on that is you need oil. And oil is always symbolic in Scripture of the Holy Spirit. Saying what you need to stay in this thing is the person, presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talking to a church that's dying, that's nominal, the first thing he says is you need to be aware of the Holy Spirit. And he says, wake up. Wake up. I would ask you this morning, ask yourself this question. Where do I see Holy Spirit activity in my life? Seriously. You see, the dynamics of what this is all about is a ongoing relationship with the living spirit in our heart. His spirit's bearing witness with our spirit. This is not a religious activity checkbox thing. It's not, it's ongoing, it's dynamic, it's a living relationship with Jesus. And that is through the person of the Holy Spirit. He says, wake up. You do not have the Holy Spirit in your life. He would tell them, there is no Holy Spirit activity. Right? And then he says this. Jesus is always like this. He's so faithful to us. And he tells us where we're at. And then he's not like some people. He makes fun of us for how stupid we were and why did we get there and didn't you learn the first time and I don't know. I don't, you're so messed up. He does none of that. He gives them an opportunity to get back to life. And he says, wake up. So the first thing you need to do is realize you are in a bad place right now. A life absent of the Holy Spirit is a really bad place to be. I've been thinking about this. Wake up. I was thinking when I was in college, I used to, I used to work two jobs, go to college full time. I was just trying to pay for college through there. I remember on I-71, I'd be coming home. It'd be a rush hour. There would be 500 cars just right around me. Eight lanes of traffic, right? Four going, four coming. I mean, people going like this, right? 
you know I wasn't one of them going like this. That might not be true. But there'd be often a lot of days in the middle of all of that. It's just rush hour, right? I would fall asleep at the wheel. I'd be sitting, we're inching ahead, and then we'd go, I'd fall asleep. I'd wake up and I'd realize, oh, Chip, this is not a good thing to be doing. There's a lot of cars going on around you. You cannot sleep. You can't do it. So I'd crank some music, slap myself, roll down the window. I realized I needed to wake up because if I started driving while I was sleeping, I was gonna get hurt. I remember driving down a state road one night, doing about 55-ish, really tired, really late. I fell asleep at the wheel, man. I don't know if you've ever done that. And for whatever reason, it's just one of those moments in your life and you look back and say, thank you, Lord. I woke up in time, but I was, I was headed off. And I was ready to just take off. I had to wake up because I was putting myself in a very dangerous situation. I tell you what, there's nothing like waking up after that, right? Doesn't matter how tired you are, when you're about off the road, headed to some kind of almost your death, boy, you're awake the whole way home. Just scares you, and he says you need to do that. You need to not be like, okay, I'll, I'll get back. I hear what you're saying, Jesus. I'll fix it. Maybe I'll start doing this. Maybe I'll start. No, wake up! Every day, absent of the Holy Spirit's activity in your life is a wake-up day. Wake up. He says, strengthen those things that remain, that are going to die. You have some religious activity. You, you, you've been attending worship. You've, you've, you've got good morals. Don't throw those things away. Strengthen them. The structures of your life aren't all bad. Keep that, but use it in a way that I always intended. And then he says, remember the word that you heard and received. He's basically saying, hey, how do I get back from this? I don't want to be nominal. I don't want to live life on autopilot coasting and Jesus himself looking at me and saying, you know what, you look good, but there ain't nothing going on inside. And you're like that, those five morons who missed the party because you didn't have the oil of the Holy Spirit in your life. And I don't know who you are because we've never had a relationship. You have did a lot of things that are around me, but you didn't know me. And he said, wake up from that. And then he says, remember what was taught to you. Remember what you learned, the truth, and you embraced it. He's basically saying, you don't want how to get back to life? Take in the word. Realize that the word is living. Prioritize your life now that I refuse to be nominal. I refuse to look alive and be dead. And so I'm going to put into my life all the time the life-giving word of God. That's the way I know what I heard and received. I'm gonna get back to that. And he says, then obey, repent. He says, Take that word and have an attitude that I am going to, whatever it says, I'm doing it. 
I'm not opening the word anymore to learn a little bit about God or find a promise from God. Those are all great. I'm opening the word today, Jesus saying, whatever you show me, I'm doing it. Because I realize the dynamics of this is not just hearing the word, but living out the word, doing the word. And if you and I want to not be nominal, or if you and I right now are somewhere where you're like, Chip, that's exactly where I'm at. That's me. You wanna get out of that? How to get back to life? Take a radical obedience to the word of God and live this way every day. Live with a desperate need for the Holy Spirit in my life. Can I live every day thinking the one thing I need to make sure is I connect with the Holy Spirit today? There's a lot of things I think I need and want, right? I don't know if you know this, I guess I can say this now because I've made it through the morning in good shape. I love Iowa football, right? Amen? So I put myself through 14 hours of driving this weekend just to go see a bunch of college kids play football. Right? I did. I guess I'm a moron. <laughs> I did because I, I, I was passion, I'm passionate about that. I like that. You guys are the same way, you know. You find things. And I put myself, I'm a little tired this morning because of it. But I wanted to do it. Can I live every day with the same kind of passion that says, today I need the Holy Spirit in my life. That wasn't even a need this weekend. That was just a want. And my wife will tell you, that was a want. And that was actually a hardship for her. Not really, but... I left four kids with her and did something because I'm passionate about it. Can I live with that kind of passion every day? I don't ever want to be nominal, God. I don't want to slide into being just, hey, the light's on, but nobody's home kind of thing. Hey, it looks like everything's going, but there's no life in them. And the only way that that doesn't happen is the person of the Holy Spirit in my life. Can I live every day desperately knowing that I need the Holy Spirit? That's what he calls us to. That's what he called Sardis to. That's what he calls all of us to. And I'm just asking this morning, would you stand? And let's just have a prayer as we go. There's so many represented here that you're not dead. You have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Would you make this as a chance to just pray, God. Just like human nature is, human tendency is, I could start coasting at some point. I could allow everything else. I could become arrogant about all of the things in my life and think I don't need you anymore and stop calling out to you and relying on you and trusting. And I will become nominal. Lord, help me to always avoid that. Maybe I'm talking to some today that you've already reached that point. Well, the words of Jesus are not condemnation to you today. He gives you promises in that, in that text that says if you'll, if you'll turn, if you'll wake up, he promises things. You can read the last three verses on your own when you go home. And maybe today, right now, in this moment, you just need to say, oh my goodness, Lord, I just need the Holy Spirit in my life.
I don't want to do religion. It doesn't work. It's really unsatisfying. In fact, sometimes it brings on a lot of unnecessary, or it brings on guilt into my life, and it makes me frustrated because I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to be religious. Would you just let the whole thing be free in the Holy Spirit? Let him energize you and bring life back into you. Would you pray this morning with me, Father? This book, this chapter, this church reminds us that the thing we need most is you and an ongoing relationship that's living and active in the person of the Holy Spirit. Lord, save us from being nominal. Save us from being religious. You're so patient, graceful, kind to us. And Lord, so many times in in my relationship with you, I've gotten distracted. I have, and you have just always calling to me, always welcoming me. You are love beyond what is our comprehension. And so Lord, help us to remember that, but help us to live every day knowing that we desperately need the Holy Spirit. Breathe life into us. Keep life in us. Keep us connected to you. So that we might not ever be said, hey, that, that, that's a Sardis church. It's a bunch of religious activity, no life. It's a church, but it's dead. Save us from that, Father. Keep us in touch with the Holy Spirit. Consistently, I pray. In Jesus' name. Thank you. Have a great day. Have a great week.